corporate fraud works best in the shadows, behind corporate walls. How does the government bring these wrongdoers to justice? Whistleblowers. These are the stories of those who risk their careers to shine a light on allegations of fraud. Today on Fraud in America. Welcome to today's episode of Fraud in America. Today, we have a good friend of mine, Tejinder Singh, uh, who's someone I turn to uh, for advice quite often on a, a lot of legal fronts. Uh, he's a member of our President's Council. Um, he is somebody that a lot of people in our bar go to whenever they're facing com- uh, appellate uh, arguments or cases that they want to appeal up to the circuit courts uh, and even the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to get into all that today. But before I do that, uh, to gender, I first want to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm excited. I feel like I finally made it. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's add this one to the to the resume, and it's it's complete now. So right, right. So uh, above all the Supreme Court arguments, you made it onto fraud in America. So congratulations. It's great. <laughs> you know, glowing over here. You can tell. That's right. That's right. So uh, to gender, late last week, uh, the Supreme Court came out with its uh, decision in the super value case. You've had a weekend to marinate on the decision. Uh, What's your take on the case, on the opinion? I think the decision is as close to a comprehensive victory for relators as we could have hoped for out of the court. I know we'll get into the background and how the case came to be, um, but the Supreme Court has issued a unanimous decision ruling for the plaintiffs in this case. It has established a scienter standard that is clear and robust, and I think will be very helpful to relators and the government, uh, anybody on the pro-enforcement side. It gives clear guidance to defendants and people who would claim public funds about what they need to do to be safe from liability. And so I think it's a great decision. I think it gives us um, clarity. I think it gives us strong tools for enforcement. And I think it gives good guidance to people on both sides of uh, the bar and their clients about how to how these cases will work. I, I couldn't agree more. I've talked to uh, some of our friends at the Justice Department, even some of our friends on the other side, uh, and the resounding answer I'm getting from everyone is uh, just that, a lot of clarity, a, a win for our side, a win for the good guys. Uh, you know, Without a doubt, the defense bar is looking for something that they can make hay out of this case, looking for something that they can latch on to, but it's hard to imagine uh, what that is. So we'll get into all of that. We'll get into the uh, why this case mattered so much, what we were concerned about why we're now breathing a little easier. Uh, but I want to take everyone back a little bit. Um, where did you grow up? So I was born in India. I grew up in Northern California. My family immigrated in 1984 and we settled in the Bay Area. My dad is a scientist and so he got a job at IBM. And so in the early stages of Silicon Valley, there we were. Uh, and that's where I grew up. And then I stayed there through college. I went to Berkeley for college. And so I spent my whole young life, more or less, in sort of a 60-mile radius. So if I understand right, when you were at Berkeley, you discovered your love of the debate, the debate team. Uh, can you talk about uh, your experience on the debate team and how that has formed 
how you approach the law today? Sure. Debate happened earlier for me, actually. It happened in high school is when I started. Uh, and I was fortunate to be able to go to Berkeley on a debate scholarship. Uh, we had wow. reasonably good success in high school and then parlayed that into better success in college. And so I was a member of the policy debate team at UC Berkeley. Uh, I did that actually for five years because I was having so much fun. I was in no hurry to graduate. And uh, I think policy debate shares a lot with legal argument. Uh, it's you know based on uh, logic, it's based on research, um, it's sort of designed in a way to, I think, train the mind. A lot of people say law school trains you to think like a lawyer. Uh, for me, I think a lot of the training happened even before I got to law school, just through being on the debate team. Uh, and it's also one of these activities where probably one of the most beneficial aspects of it is you argue both sides of every proposition. And so you become well-trained at seeing what the best arguments are on each side and learning how to answer them. Uh, and so that provides you, I think, with very useful tools for convincing skeptical audiences, which is when you're litigating on the plaintiff side in the federal courts, convincing a skeptical audience is more or less your bread and butter. And so I think a lot of the skills carry over. And I think you actually see this in debate demographics. I think debaters overwhelmingly go on to do one of two things. Uh, either they go to law school uh, or they like stay in the debate activity longer, mm -hmm. become debate coaches or something. I think law, the debate to law school pipeline is extremely strong. In fact, my current law firm, almost all of my colleagues were debaters before, not all of them, and, and you know, great lawyers who haven't done debate as well, but most of them were and knew each other from that. So I find this interesting. So when you uh, now watch people argue at the Supreme Court or the appellate court or on panels or wherever, what are some of the common mistakes that people make when they're trying to persuade the other side? I think the number one mistake people make is just misunderstanding the nature of persuasion. So think for a moment about a time when you've gotten in an argument with somebody and then you have actually changed your mind. That is someone has like beat you into submission with the force of their arguments. It basically just never happens, right? Instead, somebody comes and they argue with you and you get defensive and then you stick to your position and maybe it even hardens. And I think that a lot of times when people try to change somebody else's mind, they've sort of already lost the battle of what you're trying to do in persuasion. The right way to persuade people, or I, I won't say right or wrong, the most effective way to persuade people is not to tell them to change their mind. It's instead to convince them that what you believe is, in fact, what they have always believed, right? To convince them that you never disagreed in the first place. And I think there are a lot of folks in a lot of contexts who don't know how to do that or don't even try to know that they're tr supposed to try to do that, but mm. instead think that their job is to just sort of put up their position and then to, you know, beat anybody who disagrees with it into submission. Um, 
And I feel like those people don't add value because judges who agree with them will, of course, continue to agree with them. But judges who disagree with them will not see anything in their position that would bring them around. So what you're doing as an advocate in that situation is you're not really moving the ball. You're just winning the cases you would have won anyway and losing the other cases. Whereas if what you can do is get into somebody else's perspective, have empathy and sort of inhabit their perspective, and then find a way to make your position fit within that perspective, then I think you can take people who intuitively would not have agreed with you or who were inclined to believe they disagreed with you and get them to a place where they accept your conclusion. And I think that's the far more fruitful way. It's also substantially harder. It requires that empathy. It requires understanding that the way you want to present the argument is not necessarily the way that would be most persuasive to you, but instead the most persuasive to your audience. Uh, so there are real challenges to it. But I think if I had to identify one mistake people make in arguing, it's arguing. That is, in trying to persuade people just by arguing them, wearing them down through argument. Wow, a real masterclass. Um, so to gender, after Berkeley, you went on to Harvard uh, Law School, where you were also on the debate team. It seems like this is a thread. Uh, I read an interview that you gave where you talked about uh, you know, making it to the finals of the national debate competition uh, as an undergrad and then in law school, you similarly uh, were ranked really high. And in, in both instances, you came up just short. Um, can you talk about how those two losses, I guess you could define them as losses, uh, have motivated you even to this day, right? I mean, to, to bring us this, uh, you know, these two things seem to be very strong in the argument or the interview that I read. Uh, how do those two instances really motivate you today? Well, I mean, I don't like losing. I'm a very competitive yep. person. Uh, and so, but I think actually it's incumbent on anyone who's trying to get better at things, win or lose, uh, you want to take what happened and figure out what did we do well? What can we learn? How can we get better? I actually think that what was, what's interesting about both of those experiences uh, is at the time, they were a huge deal. Right? Nothing was more important to me in college than debate. Nothing was more important to me in law school than the moot court competition. But once I've graduated, they've immediately become trivial in hindsight. And there are reasons for that. You know, first, they're just games right? There's no real litigants rights at stake. There's no, you know, it was just a game. It was a simulation. But second, uh, you realize that your pool of competition was artificially constrained, right? In college, I, deb I was debating against other college kids. And uh, I, I, as I mentioned, I stayed for five years. And so one of the ways I became the best debater in the country is all the people who were better than me graduated, right? And they left. <laughs> and then uh, in law school, you're competing against other law students. But as soon as you graduate law school, it's different. Now, if you want to compete at the highest levels, you're litigating against Carter Phillips and Paul Clement yeah. and, you know, and people who have been doing it for 30, 40 years and are still getting better. 
And the yes. question changes, you know, it becomes like, okay, how am I going to catch up to that uh, as in my first year out of law school? And so I've actually found that those experiences were interesting. They were motivating. They were good preparation. Um, but once you get out of the sort of fishbowl of school and into the ocean uh, where all the sharks are, you know, that's where I found the game has gotten really interesting uh, because now there are so many people who are better than me. I can't just uh, wait them out and I need yes. to find ways in any given case uh, to position myself to win. And I think that that's been the far more. Uh, and so it's in one sense, you know, as I look back on those things while they were fun there, they were not the game. This is the game. So what, what what motivates you now? You talk about always wanting to get better and seeing people like Paul Clement, you know, all the uh, the people that are in the appellate bar uh, that they're better than you. How does what keeps you motivated to keep getting better? Well, as I say, I don't like losing. That's part of it. Yeah. Uh, but I also there's a reason why I litigate on the side of the V that I do. I do essentially no defense side work. So my practice involves a lot of False Claims Act work. We also represent many, many victims of terrorist attacks. Uh, we're going to be opening a line of cases where we're representing victims of human trafficking. Uh, to me, it has always been very impactful and very important to represent real people um, and often people who are dealing with, with real injuries, you know, massive ones uh, that would be crushing to many and to help them find a measure of justice in the world. And so that's very motivating. The, the stakes of the cases for my clients are tremendous. You know, for most of my clients, it's not just about money. Now, that's that's not always true. You know, for some of my clients, especially in the whistleblower space, they haven't been personally injured, um, but they're out to do good in the world and make things better. And you can see how uh, helping the government and helping the public programs that we assist makes life better for lots of people who really need it. You know, Medicaid recipients, Medicare recipients, um, soldiers in the field. There are many, many constituencies who benefit from the work we do. I find that to be tremendously motivating. You know, I'm one of the, I'll tell you, I'm one of the most fortunate lawyers I know, because although I think I probably could have made more money if I had done defense side, big law stuff, um, I have pretty much never, there's like a, a couple exceptions, one or two, I have never worked on a case I didn't want to work for. I've never worked for a client I didn't want to work for. Um, my friends who do the work on the other side and who find themselves dissatisfied, it's often because they have to work on things uh, that they don't really want to work on. I avoid that problem. Uh, I get to choose my cases and choose my battles. Um, and that also means that I get to choose statutes and arguments that I believe in. There was actually, to take it back for a moment to the super value case, there was kind of a comical moment in the oral argument where Justice Kavanaugh asked me, he's like, haven't you ever won a case where you thought you had the worst argument? And I told him, not, not yet. Um, and, and it was an honest answer because yeah. I have never uh, put myself in the position of standing up for a case I didn't believe in. Um, I have never had to do that. And so when I think about my legal career and what's motivating about it, it's really that. It's I get to do what I think is right. I get to do it 
at as high a level as my talents and effort allow. And I get to do it with people who are wonderful. Um, so that's what motivates me. When you left law school, graduated law school, was that a conscious decision that you wanted to be on the plaintiff's side? I, I know you spent some time at Aiken Gump, a you know, big defense firm. Um, but soon after you, you, you chose, I guess, the plaintiff's side. Yeah, my career path was a little tricky in that regard, but but yes, it was. So what happened to me was in law school, I spent both summers working with Tom Goldstein, um, who would be my colleague at Goldstein and Russell uh, after I graduated. Uh, Tom and I got along really, really, really well. And he's a sort of entrepreneurial uh, hustler of a lawyer. Uh, he's now retired from the practice of law. But he was the first lawyer I met who I thought, wow, I really want to be like you when I grow up. Um, mm -hmm. Just did whatever he thought made sense, whatever he wanted to do, and found a way to make it work. Uh, while I was in law school, I met my now wife. Uh, she was a student in Tom's Supreme Court litigation class. So Tom taught Supreme Court litigation at Harvard Law School. Uh, and she was a student in it. I wasn't a student in it that year, but I'd worked with Tom the prior summer. My wife is from New Zealand and Kiwis go to London, kind of how Americans go to New York. It's like where they start their careers uh, and get experience. And so that's where she was headed. So straight out of law school, I went chasing after her. I got a job at Allen and Overy in London. And I was there for only a few years because this was 2008. I was working in a group that did cross-border debt finance, if you can imagine that mm. for me. And uh, in 2008, there was no more cross-border debt finance because the global financial crisis brought the entire uh, global capital markets to a shrieking halt. And Alan and Overy, for the first time in its storied history, announced layoffs. Now, I happened to know that I was going to be clerking the next year, so I volunteered to get laid off and wound up taking just a glorious paid vacation in Europe for a few months, uh, at the end of which we got engaged. Then I came back here and clerked, and then Tom Goldstein was running the litigation group at Aiken Gump, and so I went to work for him. We were there for about four months together when Tom said, we're leaving, we're going back to the little firm, it's going to be more fun. And I said, great. Wow. So we did that. Yeah. And the little firm, uh, so at the time, uh, when we got started up there, there were three of us. It was Tom Goldstein, Kevin Russell, and myself. And the firm eventually wow. grew, I think, at a tie water mark, we had eight lawyers. Um, but because we were a small firm, it did not make sense to attempt to chase big firm clientele. It made no sense business-wise to try to represent banks or pharma companies or anything like that because we couldn't get any of the benefits of cross-selling all of our other lines of business to them, right? We couldn't do their Supreme Court work and also their labor and employment work and also their mergers. There was no, there's no upside in it. And the competition to get those companies Supreme Court business is very fierce. Every big law firm ever wants to do it. But it turns out there are almost no big law firms you can hire if you want to sue a pharma company or you want to sue a bank or sue an airline. Yeah. The plaintiff side is relatively underpopulated. There are some fantastic lawyers who do it, but not very many. And so there were the stars kind of aligned here in that 
it was what I was temperamentally interested in doing uh, with my legal career. It was representing plaintiffs or the little guy. Um, and it was also the best business proposition for our firm. And so those two things come together and that wound up being, wound up dictating the path of my practice quite a bit um, was we were a place where doing that sort of plaintiff side work was encouraged um, and it was the most sensible thing to do given our position in the market. So it was about this time that I went into private practice for 10 years and I'm, you know, in a, uh, a dungeon studying the nuances of CMS policy manuals. And I'm not really keeping up with uh, case law, probably at the level I should. And I come back to Taft. And the first thing that Bob Patton says is you need to talk to Tagender about where the case law is currently. I'm like, who's Tagender? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, talking to you when I came back was really enlightening to, you know, not only where the case law is, but what a practice you have developed in identifying a need in our practice area and, and really staking your flag in that. What what drew you to the False Claims Act and, and in particular, the appellate litigation arena around the False Claims Act? Yeah, so I was always an appellate lawyer, so that was going to be a thing. And then I started thinking about, well, what do I want my practice to be about? And we got very fortunate. Uh, well, kind of. So there was this case, Campy versus Gilead Sciences. It was a Ninth Circuit appeal. This was a case where the district court had held that because the uh, misrepresentations had been made to the FDA and not to CMS, they were simply not actionable, couldn't render the claims false. And we thought that was wrong. These are misrepresentations made in connection with the approval of a, a drug production facility. So I got this appeal. It came to us from lawyers who are not full-time FCA lawyers. They were sort of uh, class action lawyers, other kind of plaintiff's action lawyers who had an FCA case and brought it to us to do the appellate work uh, because our firm had worked with them on some class action issues in the Supreme Court. And so this was my first look at the statute. And I instantly fell in love with the idea you know, I was like, wow, this looks like all the best things about being a prosecutor. You know, you get to go after the bad guys. You get to stop real harm to the public. Um, but none of the worst things about being a prosecutor, like putting people in jail or taking home a government paycheck, you know, it looked pretty good. And at the time, if you had looked at um, you know, the press releases coming out, you would have seen cases settling for like a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. And you think, okay, that's, that's pretty good. This sounds promising. Yeah. And so um, I jumped into this with both feet and I was very excited uh, to work on the case. And the appeal, of course, went very well at first. We won a very good judgment from the Ninth Circuit. Um, and the oral argument was super fun. And uh, you know, the whole the whole process seemed great. And then, um, you know, I think people who follow the space know that case didn't go how we wanted. The bad guys petition for certiorari, the court asked the government for its views and the government said, we decided to C2A the case on remand. Uh, so that one didn't work out exactly how we liked. Um, but right around the same time, uh, a second FCA case kind of fell in my lap. Uh, this was the State Farm versus Rigsby case in the Supreme Court uh, by happenstance. 
a guy who was on the trial team went to law school with me. And so they had opposed State Farm cert petition. The Supreme Court had granted it over the trial lawyer's objection. And now they were like, oh, we really need a Supreme Court lawyer. And as I said, there aren't that many Supreme Court lawyers who are servicing the plaintiff's side. And someone on the trial team said, okay, I know a guy. So they called me and I was able to successfully pitch them on having me do the case. Uh, it wasn't my first Supreme Court argument, so that helped, but it was my second. And so got in there and did that case. And that case, of course, also went very well. We won that one. And I think that what tends to happen is if you have a couple of high profile appellate successes, especially a Supreme Court win, it draws a fair amount of attention. And since nobody else was really dedicated to the space, I found myself sort of with my arms around this empty niche. Uh, and then lots of work started to come in, including some really nice cases. There was the Polikoff case in the Tenth Circuit. There were a variety of opportunities to oppose certiorari in cases where Relators Council had won in the Courts of Appeals. And then also, of course, in connection with this, invitations to do things like speak at the Taft Conference and uh, or at the Federal Bar Association or other groups that are where people who are really knowledgeable about the space and you get a lot of exposure to the bar. And so on the back of these two appellate wins just came a ton of exposure and with that, a ton more opportunities to do the work. Um, and it was at the time interesting to me because nobody else really seemed to be interested in doing it. And I was a young lawyer who was looking for something to, to really wrap my arms around. So it was a good fit. Uh, the Rigsby sisters, I remember uh, meeting them long, long time ago. That's a case that just seemed to go on forever, but ultimately had a good recovery at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it didn't settle till last year, right? And that's, <laughs> that's one of the things about this work, right, is I won a Supreme Court case in 2016 and there was no money until 2022. And of course, the poor trial lawyers who had to carry it for even longer. Um, yeah. This is, a, this is a hard business. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not a young man's game or an old man's game. You got to sometimes it an old man's game by the time you get there. But yeah, don't start when you're old. That's right. Uh, you mentioned this wasn't your first Supreme Court case. Uh, your first one was, I think, in 2014 when you first argued for the court. Can you talk about that experience standing before the nine justices, the, the clock over your head that you hear about and the do, do not adjust the microphone sign in front of you? Yeah. Um, so that was a case called Lane versus Franks. It was also a whistleblower case. It was an employment retaliation case under the First Amendment. And I found the case by just we were running uh, computer searches on Westlaw for cases that raise circuit splits and might be good vehicles to take issues up to the Supreme Court. And I found this case and I thought, oh, yeah, we should definitely be able to take that up. I called the lawyers who lost below and I offered to do it basically for free. Uh, and they were excited about that. And so I wound up representing Mr. Lane, who's a lovely guy, uh, in his Supreme Court case about his employment retaliation. And uh, just, you know, you asked about the oral argument experience. In some ways, uh, the people who haven't done it probably and haven't been in the room probably will not realize just how close the advocate stands to the justices. Uh, you know, it's, I haven't measured it, but I think it's something like eight feet apart, basically, from the bench. And so you cannot see the entire bench. You have to turn your body if, 
justice on one of the wings asks you a question and you want to be able to make eye contact with them. So it's, it's quite an intimate experience, although the courtroom has several hundred seats in it. You can't see any of them from the podium. They're all behind you. And it feels like a, a small conversation. That argument was somewhat anticlimactic, only in the sense that it was a relatively easy case. The 11th Circuit's holding that we were challenging was, I think, quite clearly wrong. Um, and we had this interesting situation where, so the case was about a guy testified in a federal anti-corruption trial under subpoena. And he was testifying against an Alabama government official who had engaged in corruption. And so we sued the head of the community college that had fired the guy uh, mm -hmm. in his personal and official capacities. And then the amici showed up to protect, to take sides. And in this case, so the United States government supported us, which is unsurprising. It's a federal prosecution. You would imagine they want to protect their witnesses and say that those people are protected from retaliation in their employment. But even more surprising, the state of Alabama's attorney general showed up and said we were right. And so effectively, the defendant's boss showed up and said we were right filed an amicus brief on our side and argued on our side. So four advocates argued that day and three of them said we were right, including two governments who are always going to be defendants in First Amendment cases. And so yeah. it was one of these slam dunks of a case that you just knew there was no way we were going to lose. And so oral argument was quite cruisy. Um, it was not, there were not hard questions for our side. And, and I would say that as first, as first at bats go, uh, it was about as gentle of one as you could have gotten. Wow. Yeah, having the go the government stand shoulder to shoulder with you uh, is helpful. Uh, as opposed, I guess, in Campy when they're threatening dismissal, or I guess they did just see 2A on you at the, at the end of the day. Uh, uh, different story in Super yeah, Value, right? Cool. Lawson's up there with you, uh, arguing with you uh, on your side of the, the ball. So I... I read that your your son's legal analysis of the Seventh Circuit's decision in Super Value uh, was that the decision was bananas. My my eleven year old daughter's analysis was, well, that doesn't make sense. So you know, great legal minds agree that the Seventh Circuit somehow uh, got this wrong. Uh, can you talk about you know what this case was, the facts of the case, the legal issue that you were wrestling with, and and why the Super Value case mattered so much? Sure. So the facts are fairly straightforward. When retail pharmacies like your Walgreens, CVS, or in this case, grocery store pharmacies like SuperValue have uh, prescriptions that they fill, they can get reimbursed from the government if the, if the patient is a government beneficiary. And when they file those claims for payment, they have to report their usual and customary price for whatever the medicine they're dispensing is. And um, what happened was Walmart kind of turned the pharmacy market upside down in 2006. It created this $4 generic program. So they put hundreds of generic drugs on a formulary and said, if you want these drugs, you can get them four bucks for a 30-day supply, and uh, which was much cheaper than 
those medicines had been available for. Now, Walmart did the right thing. They reported the $4 as their usual and customary price, which means they charge $4 to you if you were coming in and paying cash without any insurance. They charge the government $4 if a government beneficiary got the drug. There were all these other pharmacies, including SuperValue and Safeway, that wanted to compete with Walmart, but they wanted to find a way to continue charging the government and insurance companies the higher price. And so what they did was instead of saying, okay, it's $4 across the board, they came up with these crafty mechanisms to make it look like they weren't offering the $4 to everybody, uh, but in fact they were. So one example was some of them did price matching. They said, well, if you come in and you want us to match the price of any of our competitors, we'll do that, um, including Walmarts, right? Uh, but... Uh, when they reported their usual and customary price, they didn't report the price matched price. They reported a much higher price, even if a majority of the sales were happening at a price matched discount. Other programs at Safeway were like discount clubs. You know, we'll give you these drugs for $4, but you have to sign up for our club. And because not everyone was a member of the club, they didn't report the club price as the price. And they continued charging the government the higher so some whistleblowers came along and said, this isn't right. You're defrauding the government. You're overcharging for these medicines. And the way that the pharmacies initially won was on the issue of knowledge. So what they said was, look, uh, this definition of usual and customary prices was not super clear. It wasn't clear whether it meant the price we charged to the majority of customers or whether the price needed to actually be charged to all the customers. And even if we broke the law here, uh, you cannot find that we broke the law knowingly because the law was unclear and our conduct fell within a reasonable interpretation of the law. And the relators came back and said, hold on, hold on, you know, this case has actually gone through discovery and we have your emails. And we have your executives internally explaining that they understood the need to report these discount prices as the usual and customary price, but that you decided not to because you didn't want to lose all the money you were making from the government and insurance companies. And when you actually believe that you're breaking the law, like who cares if you can come up with a reasonable explanation or rationalization, you're acting knowingly. The Seventh Circuit decided with the defendants. The Seventh Circuit said, if you have a reasonable interpretation of the law and no authoritative guidance from the government has shut that interpretation down, then you're off the hook, no matter what you actually believed. And so the extreme example that I've always given when talking about this is, you know, just imagine like a cartoon character villain who's twisting his mustache and scheming of ways to defraud the government. Under the Seventh Circuit's rule, if that guy's lawyers can come up with some straight-faced explanation for why he was allowed to do what he did, even though he thought he was breaking the law, even though he wanted to break the law and intended that, he's fine. And I just thought, like, that can't be right. That is the part of the rule that caused my son to say, well, that's bananas, right? How could it be, how could it be the case that someone who wants to cheat the government can say, I didn't knowingly cheat the government? Um, 
And so that was the import of the case is you're going to have all these situations where businesses will be able to hire some lawyer. And as long as that lawyer can say, aha, you know, we found an ambiguity, uh, you will have a complete defense to FCA liability. And of course, in the first instance, unscrupulous businesses will be incentivized to seek out ambiguities and then to maximize their profits on those ambiguities, mm -hmm. confident that no matter what they actually believe, they could always get away with it. Uh, and so that was the, that was why the case mattered, uh, is because there are ambiguities throughout the federal and state regulatory and reimbursement apparatus. Every government contract, every government program has ambiguities in it, and it cannot be the case that all of those are green lights for fraud. Uh, if they are, you're just going to end up with a situation where businesses that have no integrity will illegitimately lay claim to billions and billions of public dollars and fatally compromise the efficacy of many of these programs. Yeah, I think you put your, your finger on it. You know, there's, there's always something you can point to after the fact is being ambiguous and somebody somewhere possibly could have interpreted it this way, even though you personally didn't view it uh, that way. I don't think I've ever seen so much concern about a possible Supreme Court argument going the wrong way. Even with Allison Engine in 2008, 2009, it wasn't the level of concern uh, that people had over this case. And to see the SG's office step up and and our bar step up, a lot of prayers sent your way uh, on oral argument uh, day. Um, so the day of oral argument was interesting. Um, I wasn't able to go down, but I was listening, uh, and I was surprised to hear Justice Thomas Asked the first series of questions. Were, were you surprised that Thomas was driving the questioning so much? He's usually, usually someone who doesn't ask questions. No, I wasn't surprised by that. So it is true that historically Justice Thomas has been quiet uh, at oral argument, but that changed recently. So the Supreme Court has altered its oral argument format in recent terms. And what it now does is it gives the advocate two minutes of uninterrupted time. And then the justices start sort of a free-for-all period of questioning. And then after that, there's a round robin where in descending order of seniority, the justices go around the horn and get to ask more questions. And what has been true in this new format is Justice Thomas has traditionally asked the first question or two and then has ordinarily stayed quiet until round robin time. And I think it's because Justice Thomas prefers not to interrupt advocates or to talk over his colleagues. And so what the court has done to accommodate him is create space at the beginning for him to get out questions. And so it's actually quite commonplace for him to kick off the questioning these days. Can you talk about the oral arguments, how you thought things went? Anything surprise you? Yeah, uh, the oral argument was very surprising. So... I, um, we had numerous moot courts leading up to this case being argued, and I believe that oral argument was going to be a really tough fight. I thought that what we would be looking at is a situation where we would get a fair amount of pushback on our vision of how the Sienter standard works, uh, because 
there had been certain opinions that suggested that. So Justice Kavanaugh, when he was on the D.C. Circuit, uh, joined an opinion in this case called MWI versus Purcell, which basically agreed with the Seventh Circuit's approach uh, that we thought was wrong. And so I, I walked in thinking at least Justice Kavanaugh might be very hostile to our position. Uh, I had a sense that some of the more conservative justices who have traditionally tended to side with business in False Claims Act cases might be also sympathetic to that view. I didn't think Justice Kavanaugh's view would be idiosyncratic. And so although we thought, we were quite confident that there was a path to five votes, uh, but I thought that that's what oral argument would be about, would be about getting to five votes on something workable on the Cientric standard. Um, but it turned out that that wasn't what oral argument was about. So uh, fairly quickly on, Justice Kavanaugh asked me a hypothetical question that was exactly what I thought it would be. You know, he was asking about the boundaries of our Sienter rule and suggesting, I think, that we were going to be imposing a high burden on businesses. And so I answered the hypothetical he gave me as best I could. And then Justice Kagan jumped in and she said, I'm surprised by your answer to Justice Kavanaugh. I thought the answer would have been, uh, you know, that's not this case. This is an easy case and we don't need to get into those hypotheticals to resolve this case. And my reaction, I was like, well, I didn't say this out loud, but I was thinking like, well, that's not normally how we answer hypotheticals, you know, by just blowing them off and saying that's not. Yeah. Especially from a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, but sure. You know, yeah, this is an easy case. Why not? And you don't need to get into all of that to rule in our favor. And then a very interesting thing happened. There was sort of a cascade of reactions of justices saying, yeah, isn't this the easy case? Um, and it became my intuition at that point was, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to win in a unanimous, narrow opinion that yeah. says, you know, the Seventh Circuit's rule, which authorizes these post hoc rationalizations, that's wrong, uh, but it's probably not going to clarify the Sienter standard much further than that. And um, I think you would have heard from both us and the government at oral argument kind of asking for more, um, yep. that is asking for greater clarity about the Sienter standard. Uh, but at that point, my priority actually shifted to avoiding harm. That is, I, if we were going to get a narrow opinion, I didn't want it to have some stray paragraph of bad dictum or some concurrence by someone who hates our position but joins because this is the easy case. You know, I wanted to just get, if we're going to get a narrow opinion, let's get a narrow unanimous opinion that's clean, what became my priority. Um, and so, yeah, oral argument did not go the way I thought. I, I came in thinking that at the end of oral argument, I would not be sure whether I was going to win, that it would be a very close case. I left oral argument 100% confident that we were going to win this case, uh, but unsure whether there would be sort of dangling bad language that might create problems for us on remand or problems for other cases. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about the opinion itself in a moment, but you know, we managed to uh, address those fears well, I think, and we got a very, very good opinion. You raise a good point to gender. You know, as a Supreme Court advocate, you're you're thinking yes about your client, but also the impact it can have for case law down the line. Um, 
how does how does that battle play out at the moment? You know, an oral argument when you're thinking, all right, I got to make sure I represent my client's interest, but without doing harm to your know, future cases. Yeah, you always want to represent your client first. Uh, that's your ethical obligation, of course, and you cannot shirk it under any circumstances. Uh, I think there is there is a debate among people about just the nature of Supreme Court advocacy. You know, if you think that the Supreme Court is going to be hostile to your position, should you just refrain from casing, taking cases up? I think that's a, a conversation that happens out there. And my own view on it is you have a client, you have an obligation, you do what's best for your client. And if your client's lost, then you take the case up. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of times where the conflict is not really acute. And this was one of those times. What was best for everybody on the plaintiff side was also best for my client, right? And so what you need to think about in that moment is, okay, look, it looks like I have a bird in the hand. It looks like the court is going to come with me on this relatively narrow proposition. If I start reaching for more, which would help my client and everybody else, um, is there a chance that the rubber band snaps and all of a sudden the court doesn't want to come with me at all? And I viewed the risk of that as being minimal, right? I viewed it as like, okay, we've already cleared the first hurdle. Let's see how many we can get over before we run out of time. Um, and so I did not view this case as one where there was any material tension between my client's interests and the interests of you know, our side of the V as a whole. Uh, that can happen in other cases. There can be cases where you feel like if I push for a broad rule, I'm gonna lose votes and mm -hmm. I need to push for a narrow rule to help my client, even if it doesn't help others. But this was not one of those cases. And so I felt like it was very safe to try and take as much as I could. Mm. Yeah, I've seen sometimes in the False Claims Act arena where the SG's office will take on that bigger, broader implication argument. Um, and the Relators Council is arguing kind of, you know, in our case, this is where the impact really is. Um, but you and Malcolm seem to be singing from the same hymnal. Uh, it was a nice one-two punch. Yeah, yeah, we had actually very good coordination with the SG's office in this case. They were delightful to work with. Malcolm is a fantastic lawyer. Uh, ben, who worked on the cases, the assistant is also a fantastic lawyer. It was a very, very good experience. So the other side had to get up after hearing the justices say, this seems like an easy case. What are we missing here? Um, if you were in their shoes, what would you be thinking as you're making your way up to the podium hearing what the justice had said on your side? So I think that there was essentially nothing they could have done to win the case. You know, if the parties had traded lawyers, I couldn't have won this case for them. But part of that is kind of their fault in the sense that the defense in this case reached for a very broad and in my opinion, sort of a little bit absurd rule. And it's the flip side of what we were just talking about. I think the rubber band snapped for them. I think that mm. they had uh, the possibility before a relatively sympathetic court to get good language on Sienter. But I think that because uh, the Seventh Circuit boxed them in a little bit, the Seventh Circuit adopted a very broad rule. And so they wanted to defend it. They didn't want to throw that rule under the bus because they didn't know how it would land with the justices. 
fair enough. But I think that once it became clear to them that the Seventh Circuit's rule was not necessarily going to fly, they hadn't done a lot in the briefing to give themselves soft landings. Um, I think that they made a strategic call that they wanted the Seventh Circuit's rule to be the rule and that everything else was, uh, you know, not they didn't want to offer half a loaf because uh, they wanted to see if they could get the whole thing. Fair enough. You know, made your play. Um, so I don't actually think there was a lot that could have been done at oral argument at that point uh, to salvage much. Except, you know, playing into this idea of like, okay, look, if you're going to rule this way, rule narrowly, um, don't say X, Y, and Z things, because that would be tremendous exposure for our side that isn't warranted. Um, I think those are things they could have said. But I just think it was, by that point, the cake was mostly baked. And I'm not mm. sure there was a lot that could have been done. I can't remember who said it. Um, it might have been Sotomayor, something in reference to... You know, remember what we did in Escobar, how that led to unintended consequences. And let's be careful what we're doing here uh, today. What did, what did you take from that as far as Escobar and the impact of Escobar? Well, Escobar was obviously a case that had wide reaching consequences. I'm sure that some of the justices regarded those consequences as unintended. I'm guessing that others were quite fine. with them. So, <laughs> you know, it's hard to tell. Um, whether I, I doubt that there was a single held view about how Escobar played out that, you know, it was good, it was bad. Um, it does seem to have landed in a fine place after a couple of years of messy litigation and sort of bad materiality rulings that were then reversed on appeal. Uh, I didn't know at the time what to make of Justice Sotomayor's comment about Escobar. I wasn't quite sure how it related to this case in the moment. I'm glad I did not have to really do anything with it in the moment. Um, I do think, though, that it is true that cases in the False Claims Act space, you know, they come up on their particular facts and they can have very, very broad implications beyond those facts. And so I do think... It's nice for the justices to be aware of the possibility of unintended consequences and to try and balance their desire to bring clarity to the law on one hand by sort of articulating a comprehensive opinion that addresses every issue with their knowledge that they're looking at only one set of facts that may not be the most typical. I think Escobar itself was a case with very atypical facts, right? You had sort of a single family talking about the flaws of a single institution and that operating as a standard for the entire implied certification landscape was was probably not the ideal vehicle to take the case up. Um, and so that that led to some problems. In some ways, this case was a more typical example. And so it presented less of that issue of idiosyncratic fact, fact patterns creating weird law. Um, but I, you know, I liked I liked hearing that there was sensitivity to the idea that the decision could have unintended consequences uh, and to mitigating those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, I think this is maybe the ninth or 10th Supreme Court case since I've been in this practice area for in the last 20 years. So we're looking at like about every other term. There's two arguments, uh, two cases for the Supreme Court this term, the Plansky case we're still waiting on. Why is the Supreme Court obsessed with the False Claims Act? I don't actually think they are. I just think that the False Claims Act throws off more 
complex legal questions than uh, many statutes do. And I think that, so there are actually a fair number of circuit splits in False Claims Act land. I would say that this case was one where the circuit split was probably the least solid of some of the cases. There was very little sort of explicit disagreement among the courts of appeals. I think their holdings were in tension, but they weren't like shouting at each other the way they do in some cases. And so um, I think that there are a few things. You know, the, the criteria the Supreme Court uses to grant cert, number one is, is there a circuit split? And in FCA cases, they're off and on. Number two is, is this an important issue? And I think you hear from all sides quite frequently that this is a very important statute. That is, you have the government and plaintiffs saying, no, this is relevant to billions of dollars. And you have industry saying, yeah, this is relevant to billions of dollars and to how we provide healthcare and so many other things. And so regardless of where you are, whether you're a pro-law enforcement, pro-business, pro-plaintiff, whatever your inclinations are, you're likely to think that these issues are important. Um, And then, you know, third is just like, I do think it matters. Like, is it interesting? Uh, And I think the FCA has a lot of interests behind because it's a fun statute. Um, I will also say like, there are a fair number of ambiguities in the law that could be ironed out through legislative drafting. Um, And so that's sort of the antecedent to the circuit split point. There just seems to be enough ambiguity that the statute becomes a bit of a Rorschach test for different appellate judges to impose their their priors on it. And that's where you get these circuit disagreements. Mm. You mentioned, you know, legislative fixes, you know, Grassley, uh, made it very clear that if the Supreme Court went the wrong way here, he was going to make sure that they understood what he meant in 86 and 09 and 2010 uh, and pick up the drafting pen and try to make it clear uh, here. Uh, but the court went the right way. Can you talk about what the court decided and what the impact is of this decision? Yeah. So in essence, the court says it does a couple of things. First, it conclusively puts an end to this idea that you can have a post hoc rationalization uh, safe harbor for knowing misconduct. And so the court takes the FCA's Sienter standard and says you're going to measure Sienter at the time the defendant acted based on what the defendant thought or believed, not on what some other person might have thought or believed. Um, and so this whole reasonable interpretation thing is is done, which is great. Uh, second, the court says the FCA's Sienter standard broadly tracks the common law fraud Sienter standard. Uh, it references section 526 of the second restatement of torts and section 10 of the third restatement of torts, which explain how Sienter works in the common law fraud context. I think that this is an important development because it furnishes a lot of clarity about how to interpret the terms in the FCA standard. And it reinforces what I think is the most important point, which is that if you make a false statement without honest belief in its truth, you have acted with scienter. And to to be really clear about what that means, it doesn't mean you have to believe the statement was false. It just means you weren't honestly sure that it was true. 
and it encourages a high degree of transparency. So for example, under this common law standard, let's say that I think what I'm saying is probably right. I'm saying it, I'm 80% sure I'm right, but 20% I might be wrong. Uh, and I say it, and it turns out I am wrong. But when I said it, I didn't express any uncertainty. I didn't qualify my statement at all. I was like, this is the truth. Uh, the, that's fraud under the common law. And I think now it's quite clear that that's also fraud under the FCA. Um, and so I think that it's a really helpful clarification because there's a body of law you can turn to to understand how the Sienter standard works. Uh, it's a well-established body of law, well-developed in many states and, and federal contexts, and it imposes a, an obligation that I think is exactly what Congress intended in 1986. Yeah, for, so, for a long time, we try to argue that Rule 9b uh, didn't apply to the False Claims Act because it's not a fraud statute. We lost that issue in every circuit court. And now to embrace uh, the restatements when it comes to fraud, uh, is a 180 that obviously helps us now. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, the evolution in that area. So I have to ask you, your uh, in-house legal scholar, Master Singh, your 10-year-old son, uh, what is his take on uh, last week's decision? Oh, he thinks it's right. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we, yeah, we had the conversation about, uh, I told him on Thursday, hey, we won that case. And he was like, oh, good. What did they say? And you know, explained to him what the court had ruled. And and he was like, yeah, sure, that sounds good. Um, and so I think that uh, there there is one question the court bracketed, which is going to be, yes. I think, the next front in litigation, which is the court said, we're not taking a position today, we're resolving today, whether objective recklessness could be enough. That is, the defendant wasn't conscious of the risk that their statements are false, but the statements were so... Uh, likely to be false, that they should have been conscious. The Supreme Court doesn't get into that. And so uh, I asked my 10-year-old what he thought about whether that should be enough to make something a lie, and he wasn't sure either. But I will say that my experience has been, I think, based on the legislative history, based on pre-existing case law, which obviously the Supreme Court didn't overrule, objective yeah. recklessness remains a pathway to establish liability. And under the common law standard, Evidence that supports objective recklessness is also sufficient circumstantial evidence of subjective knowledge, right? If your interpretation was crazy, a jury can infer based on that, that you didn't actually believe it. And so I'm not actually sure it makes a huge difference, this question that the Supreme Court reserved. Um, but in all other respects, I know that my 10-year-old and I think the opinion was exactly I hope people in the back of the room were listening to that when I saw a lot of uh, headlines in the flaw, flaw, flaw 360 articles and things like that, really making a lot of hay out of this objective recklessness question being outstanding. Uh, I think you answered that one very succinctly at the gender. Well, I think so what, what you said before that the defense bar has been casting about for any kind of hook they can have to make any kind of argument. And, uh, and, you know, I don't. I don't really think this is one for them, but you know, they got to try, like everyone got to build those hours. <laughs> that is, that's right. So what do you think, what do you think is next? You mentioned this, you know, outstanding question uh, or issue. Uh, where is the next battleground on the false claims act front 
or which one is going to maybe boil its way up to the Supreme Court, do you think? Well, we're still waiting on the Supreme Court to decide Polanski, so we'll have the C2A dismissal authority question resolved relatively soon. Um, I filed a cert petition last year about Rule 9b stuff. I think there is a split about Rule 9b, but the Supreme Court has turned it down, and I don't really imagine that they're just waiting for a better vehicle because we gave them three options and they didn't like yeah. any of them. So I think that's going to remain an issue of some controversy. Uh, I think that in terms of big picture legal questions, now that the Sienta issue is put largely to bed, uh, there aren't as many huge ones. I think that there's, my, people who know me know that my least favorite provision of the False Claims Act is the public disclosure bar. I think it is the most consistently misinterpreted and, um, and harshly applied. Uh, it's yes. bizarre to me that a provision that has nothing to do with whether the defendant is culpable winds up being a conclusive defense in so many cases. And so um, I'm involved in multi-front litigation about the public disclosure bar right now. Um, and we'll see where all of that lands. Uh, but I think that um, other issues I've heard about, you know, the anti-kickback statute and the way it connects to the False Claims Act, there's a brewing circuit split there about the causation standards. Uh, there's questions about uh, how certain programs like uh, Medicare Advantage uh, and Medicare Part A that don't, you know, have claims for specific line items when you can, how you can show falsity and materiality for claims that are sort of lumped together. Um, I think that there are still, there's always going to be interesting legal issues as long as there are, you know, clever ways to defraud the government and there will always be those. So uh, I, I think there's still a lot of work left to do. Uh, but I think that the Sienter standard, because it's so cross-cutting, will be helpful in all of these cases. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Uh, these issues will always uh, find their way up to the Supreme Court, which makes me very thankful uh, that you are uh, younger than me uh, and that you're going to be around defending our side of the ball for, for many years to come. Well, uh, you want to make sure to join us next week on Fraud at America because we're going to head up to Boston and we're going to speak with Tom Green, who is Relators Counsel in the largest non-intervene Ketam recovery. It was a case involving Biogen, a kickback case that recovered $900 million for the federal government and state government and Relators Council. So make sure you join us next week. Make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. Head over to taf.org, T-A-F.org, to sign up for our newsletter, where you'll get notification of all of our upcoming episodes. To gender, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. If you believe you have witnessed fraud against the government or fraud on the financial markets, we encourage you to visit our website at taf.org, where you will find a directory of member attorneys who represent whistleblowers across the country. On our website, you will also find additional information about our nation's various whistleblower laws and programs and a way to donate to our organization as we step forward in spreading information about whistleblower programs. This episode was edited and produced by Rachel Brooks, and our theme song is by Connor Chaos. A big thank you to our TAF staff and researchers of James King, Emma Bass, Jackie DeMar, Kate Scanlon, Max Boldman. 
Fraud in America is a project of Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund. The opinions expressed on today's show belong solely to the guest and are not necessarily endorsed by the organization. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Fraud in America.